0: See to it that no one takes you captive through hollow and deceptive philosophy, which depends on human tradition and the basic principles of this world rather than on Christ. That's Colossians 2.8. Greetings, New Life family. My name is Andrew Kirchner, and I'm honored to be here today to continue your series in the book of Acts, which chronicles the work of the Holy Spirit in the early church. We're in the midst of Uh, Paul's missionary journeys, and I think that it would be best if we jump right in. We'll be looking at Acts chapter 17 today. In the book of Acts chapter 17, we are going to see a monumental fight between the power of God and the power of evil, the spirit of God and the spirit of deception, philosophy that is based on Christ. And philosophy that is based on human tradition and the basic principles of this world. Our hero is, of course, the Holy Spirit, who's inspiring the Apostle Paul. Now, I really like the Apostle Paul because he's pretty pugnacious. He will pick a fight with just about anybody. He doesn't care if you're a Jew. He doesn't care if you're a God-fearing Greek. He doesn't care if you're a Greek who worships the pantheon of false gods. He is ready to debate at the drop of a hat. And we'll see that in play today. I really like the Apostle Paul a lot, not only because of his pugnacious character, but because he is a very intellectual fellow. The Apostle Paul is, for my money, the smartest merely human guy that ever walked the earth. Of course, Jesus, being God and man at the same time, has a leg up on him, but the Apostle Paul is so brilliant. Just reading the logical disputation that he puts forth in many of his epistles is a wonderful way to clear the mind, to organize the thoughts, and to prepare the spirit for worship in not only study, but life in general. Paul also says in the book of 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 1, follow my example as I follow the example of Christ. I really try to do that pretty literally with the Apostle Paul. The Apostle Paul studies philosophy. I like to study philosophy. The Apostle Paul studies the Bible. I like to study the Bible. The Apostle Paul preaches and teaches, and I preach and teach. The Apostle Paul started out opposed to the work of God as revealed in the person of Jesus Christ and had to be converted. I started out opposed to the work of God in Jesus Christ. I was something of a mean atheist during high school. I was very outspoken in my disdain for Christians because I thought that they were all intellectually foolish. I thought that they were all stupid. I hadn't ever met a Christian that could answer my questions. Admittedly, my pool of people was high school kids. And how many high school kids are prepared to intellectually defend the truths of Christianity? Not enough. Not enough, I'll tell you. And so we have to fix that. And I tried to do that. But I finally met a guy. He was a youth minister at a church. And he was kind and loving and compassionate. And he was also brilliant and intelligent and well-versed, and he showed me the truth, and he answered my questions, just like Paul had an encounter with Jesus, and Jesus was able to get through to him and say, now you work for me. This man, who took the time to lovingly pour into me, helped me decide that now I must work for God. And so I went to Bible college, and I met my beautiful wife there, and I graduated from Bible college, and I picked up a master's degree in Christian apologetics because I want to be pugnacious, just like Paul. If anybody says Christianity is false, I'm ready to bop them in the nose, spiritually speaking, of course. I'm a big guy, but I don't like to throw hands physically. Uh, But I don't have to. I don't have to. Thank God we live in the safest country in the whole world, where we're still allowed to talk about this stuff openly and I want to keep it that way. And so anytime somebody says, hey, I don't like those ideas that you're preaching, I say, well, why don't you tell me why you don't like them and I'll tell you why they're right. Well, I uh, went back and I taught at Ozark Christian College for four years. Uh, The Book of Acts was one of the classes that I got to teach, so I'm really excited to preach today. And then my wife and I moved to Arkansas where I picked up a second master's degree in philosophy and I just finished my PhD in philosophy. I really, really like philosophy as long as you base it on Christ. Because if you base philosophy on Christ, the love of wisdom is a glorious, wonderful thing. But if you attempt to pursue wisdom outside of the plan of God's revelation and outside of the plan of God's special or specific revelation, oh, oh, you're going to be a wandering fool. And these are some that Paul encounters in Acts 17. Paul and his companions had left uh, Philippi. They arrived in Thessalonica, where Paul entered the synagogue and reasoned with the people, as was his custom. Many Jews believed, but lots of Jews were opposed to the work that uh, Paul was preaching, especially when he said that Jesus was the Messiah and that he was raised from the dead. And so, some of the Jews that were upset about this started stirring up some bad characters And they started a riot. And they eventually drove Paul and his companions out of Thessalonica to Berea. Now, when they got to Berea, they were of much nobler character, says verse 11 of Acts 17. For they checked every day with the Scriptures to see if what Paul said was true. Time out. That's one of the most important sentences in all of Scripture. I love Joe. He invited me to come preach here today. But never take his word for it. Check every day to see if what he says is in the Word, and if it is, you know you've got a good one. And if it's not, you know you need to wrangle him up a little bit. He's he's a good one. Uh, I, I promise. I've known him for a long time. But that's what you should do. Always check for yourself. You can't just take the preacher's word for it. Because what if the preacher is wrong? What if the preacher is saying things that are not right? How many people have been led astray by those who veer from the Word of God and, and just like to scratch the itchy ears of audiences around the world? Far too many. And so the Bereans, they had it right. Oh, but those Thessalonians, those Thessalonians, they chased them down. They followed Paul and his guys all the way to Berea, and they tried to kill them there. And so Silas and Timothy stayed back in Berea, and Paul was escorted to Athens. And Athens is where we pick up today. We'll start in verse 16 in just a moment. But Athens, let me lay a little bit of the groundwork. Athens is the intellectual, educational, and religious center of the Roman world. Famed for the Greek Parthenon, the most impressive of all pagan temples. In fact, I've got a picture of the ruins of um, the Parthenon that you can take a look at here. Um, And it's a beautiful structure. It's this wonderful structure with all these excellent columns. Well, in Athens, of course, named after the Greek goddess of wisdom, Athena, stood a 15-foot-tall pedestal upon which a 40-foot-tall statue of Athena resided. Now, the spear and helmet of Athena, and there might even be a picture there, were made out of gold. And you can just imagine Paul seeing the glinting light reflecting off Athena's spear as he's entering the city, knowing what he's in store for. Well, there's another picture that I'd like to show you that shows a little bit more of the layout of Athens. Athens is a really neat place because Athens has something called the Acropolis. Now, the Acropolis is this mount, this mountain, Mars Hill is what some of our translations call it, and and it's this wonderful seat upon which the philosophers would love to go and discuss. The city of Athens was home to the intellectual elite of the ancient world. There, philosophy trumped physicality. Reason, logic, and the latest ideas kept the people quite busy. Some of the greatest thinkers of all time hail from Athens. Socrates, the father of modern philosophy, Plato, who established the world's first university and named it the Academy, from which we get the word academics, Aristotle, the personal tutor of Alexander the Great, who conquered the known world, just to name a few. Also, Epicurus, Epicurus, the founder of Epicureanism, and Zeno, the founder of Stoicism, all came from Athens. In the very center of the city was the Acropolis, which is a large hill upon which stood the Parthenon and the pagan temple and the meeting place of the Areopagus. The Areopagus is sort of like the Athenian Supreme Court of Ideas. Now, the city prized itself on being highly tolerant and accepting all the different gods. While Athena was the city's patron, every other god was also worshipped there. In fact, as we'll find out, they worshipped gods they didn't even know And Paul will draw everybody's attention to a statue and an idol to an unknown God. This is the setting for our scene today. Let's read together Acts 17, verses 16 through 21. While Paul was waiting for them in Athens, he was greatly distressed to see the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue with both Jews and God-fearing Greeks as well as in the marketplace day by day with those who happened to be there. A large group of Epicurean and Stoic philosophers began to debate with him. Some of them asked, what is this babbler trying to say? Others remarked, he seems to be advocating foreign gods. They said this because Paul was preaching the good news about Jesus and the resurrection. Then they took him and brought him to a meeting of the Areopagus, where they said to him, may we know what... This new teaching is that you are presenting? You are bringing some strange ideas to our ears, and we would like to know what they mean. All the the Athenians and foreigners who lived there spent their time doing nothing but talking about and listening to the latest ideas. Just imagine it. Paul has just escaped a band of jealous, murderous, Thessalonians who've been hunting him from city to city but what really draws his ire is not the threatening machinations of his human enemies but the troubling multitudinous nature of his demonic enemies. Paul knew full well that he, that idols are demonic. In 1 Corinthians chapter 10 he talks about this and he says do I in verse uh, he says in verse 19 do I mean that food sacrificed to an idol is anything or that an idol is anything No, but the sacrifices pagans make are offered to demons, not to God. And I do not want you to participate with demons. The gods of the Greek and Roman pantheon are merely characters from a story who are unable to transform the lives or the morality of the people who study them. Paul knew that if the people did not worship the God, they would start to worship a God of their own design, fashioned by their own hands and by their own skill. Demons masquerade as those false gods, and in receiving worship, demons seduce people away from the true God, which is why idols are so destructive and dangerous. Well, provoked over and over by Athens' outrageous effrontery to God, every time Paul turned a corner, and encountered yet another lifeless, abominable idol, a storm began to brew in Paul's inner being. Humans seeking to capture him were one thing, but demons seeking to capture the soul of an entire city was something entirely different, and it launched Paul (coughs) into immediate and persistent action. In the heart of the city, filled with temples to false gods, Paul was the only one filled with the Holy Spirit. In a city famous for its temple to a false god, Paul was walking around as a living, breathing temple to the true God. And in this city, Paul reasoned in the synagogue and in the marketplace so that he could address both the Jews and the God-fearing Greeks and the pagans. Well, a group of Epicurean and Stoic philosophers began to debate him, and some insulted him. What's this babbler trying to say? Others were pretty curious as to what he was talking about, and they said, he seems to be advocating foreign gods. Paul preaches about Jesus and the resurrection so much, and speaks to them in their language Greek, so often he mentions the word resurrection, which in Greek is the word anastasis, that the people thought he was preaching Christ and anastasis. They thought Anastasis was the name of a resurrection god. And some of them didn't even realize that Paul is talking about how Christ was raised from the dead. And so they needed to get more information out of him. Jesus is the one that Paul is talking about, and so they asked him to share more about it. Now, such a scenario might be scary to you. It might be scary. After all, the intellectual elite from a dominant philosophical school of thought, Stoicism and Epicureanism, challenged Paul to explain the faith in the most densely philosophical environment in human history, just steps away from where hundreds of years earlier, Socrates was sentenced to death for supposedly corrupting the youth and talking about the gods. Wow. Imagine it. The smartest men on the planet in the most academically intimidating location on the planet, demand that you advocate for your faith in an intellectual and robust way, and they demand that you do it now. Not in a few days after you prepare for it. Now. Like, right now. How many of you would be ready to do that? You might think, oh, I'm not going to Athens. It's not that big a deal. Well, it happens in Fayetteville. It happens all over the place. In the philosophy department at the University of Arkansas, you get challenged a lot. There's some intellectual bullying that goes on. And you're told, yeah, you better not get too hot and heavy with that God stuff because then you might not be able to stick around as much. And so, because they would put out veiled threats like that. And I said, you you don't want to be a one-trick pony, Andrew. You don't want all your philosophy to be about God stuff. And I said, well, that's the only reason we have philosophy is for God stuff. So that's exactly what I'm going to do. And they said, you better not write your master's thesis on a God thing. And so I wrote my master's thesis on St. Anselm's ontological argument for the existence of God, which is the most brilliant, reason-packed argument for the existence of God ever discovered by the mind of man. They said, well, when you do your Ph.D., you better not write about God stuff. And so I wrote my Ph.D. dissertation on the doctrine of the Trinity, and I defended it logically against their attacks. Because we have to be able to stand up to the intellectual elite, who would look their nose down at us and say, oh, you Christians are so stupid. Look at all our smart guys. Look at all our Ph.D. doctors. Look at our modern-day Stoics and Epicureans. And we have to be ready. Paul was ready, but it can be a pretty scary thing to do this. The two groups requesting Paul explain what he believed were the Epicureans and the Stoics. There's a little bit of information about the Epicureans that will be on the screens behind you. They were founded by the great philosopher Epicurus, and they sought to enjoy life. Epicureans believed that the gods, they were disinterested in human affairs, and they believed that there was no life after death. Since the gods don't care, and since death is the end of everything... The Epicureans saw pleasure as the highest of all virtues, and seeking pleasure and avoiding pain was the order of the day. Their famous slogan still exists today. Eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die. Well, we don't call them Epicureans today. Usually we call them uh, hedonistic utilitarians today. That's just the philosophical lingo for people who just want to enjoy life because they think when you die, there's nothing else. Oh, there's a lot of people like that. And there's a lot of people who are intellectually uh, just you know, they don't bother with much, but there are also high-level philosophers who think this kind of nonsense. And these were the guys challenging Paul. Well, the Stoics, on the upper hand, on the other hand, they sought not to enjoy life, but to endure life. Founded by the great philosopher Zeno, Stoicism gets its name because he would preach under a covered portico in Athens called the Stoa, and so they became the Stoics. The Stoics were pantheists, which meant that they believed God was everything. God wasn't separate from creation. God is creation. God is everything. More nonsense. They also believed that since everything is God, nothing happens by accident. The Stoics were hardcore fatalists. They believed that everything that happened is the will of God. This means that a good Stoic will accept everything bad or good that happens without too much emotion. And we've got some people like this today. Oh, beat back your emotion, because we don't have to be emotional people. And they just say, yeah, everything is determined, you can't change anything, and so just accept it. I refuse to believe that. We know that God is a God of His Word, a God of faithfulness, a God who will answer prayer. I don't just fatalistically accept the things that happen to me. We can do things about them. So with all this in mind, Paul stands before the titans of intellect, the philosophical apex of human thought, and it's in front of these guys he makes his appeal. So let's read what Paul has to say. Let's read verses 22 through 23. Just a couple to get started. Paul then stood up in the meeting of the Areopagus and said, People of Athens, I see that in every way you're very religious. For as I walked around and looked carefully at your objects of worship, I even found an altar with this inscription. To an unknown God. So, you are ignorant of the very thing you worship. And this is what I am going to proclaim to you. Paul He's he's no dummy. He starts off by uh, acknowledging the religious zeal of the people, and he makes sure to note that he has carefully investigated the culture of those to whom he now speaks. But know this. Zeal misplaced is no virtue at all. It doesn't matter how zealous you are for things that don't matter. It doesn't matter how zealous you are for things that are untrue. To somehow cover all their bases, the Athenians even worshipped an unknown God. And so Paul says, this is the God that I'm going to proclaim to you today. So let's pick up verses 24 and 25. The God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth. And He does not live in temples built by human hands. And He's not served by human hands as if He needed anything. Rather, He Himself gives life and breath to everything else. Contrary to the pantheon worshipped by the ancient Greeks and Romans, there is only one God. And this one God created the entire cosmos, and His temple is not built by human hands as if He needed anything. No. The cosmos itself is God's temple. Temples were very, very important to the ancient world. The idea was that gods were regional. Gods only had limited power. You were the god of the sun, or you were the god of the river, or you were the god of the air, or the god of the underworld, or the god of the frogs. And you only had, as a god, a little bit of control, and certainly only over the one thing over which you have dominion. But you only get your power if you are seated in your temple because it's, The temple that is sort of like the control panel from which you operate your little slice of reality. And somebody's got to build you a temple. And that's why the gods needed people. The people, the humans, had to build temples and statues for these false gods so that these false gods could supposedly have power over a little slice of reality. This is what they actually thought. So Athena, the goddess of wisdom, needed a temple And in front of the temple, she needed a statue. And by that statue, Paul declared that the one true God is the creator of the cosmos and everything in it. And that his temple is all of creation. The one true God's power is not limited to wisdom or the air or the water. His power is the total dominion of all reality. His temple is the very universe that he created. And by extension, when he creates human beings in his image, when he comes to dwell in us, we become his temple. It's a very different worldview. He's not empowered by human adoration. In fact, God gives, God himself gives life and breath and everything else to everyone else. Now, this contradicted the stoic belief that God is everything. God is separate from creation, Paul is saying. And the true God is separate from everything else that's made. Well, listen to what Paul says in verses 26, 7, and 8. From one man, God made all nations that they should inhabit the whole earth and marked out their appointed times in history and the boundaries of their lands. God did this so that they would seek Him. And perhaps... Reach out for Him and find Him, though He's not far from any one of us. For in Him we live and move and have our being. As some of your own poets have said, we are His offspring. The one true God that Paul is talking about here works in the lives of His creation to accomplish His divine purpose. From Adam comes all men. From Noah and his family are we all descended. From Father Abraham, the three monotheistic religions of our time all trace their lineage. God gave humans their land and marked out their appointed times. This truth contradicted the Epicurean belief that gods are disinterested in human affairs. Instead, the reason that the one true God is so active in human life is so that human beings would perhaps reach out to Him and find Him, even though He's not very far. He's closer than a lot of you think. God can be discovered by human reason. God can be discovered by human observation of the created order. God can be discovered by the investigation of His special revelation in the Holy Scriptures. Paul let his audience know that not only was he familiar with their beliefs as his inquirers, but that he was also familiar with their authors. Paul quotes Epimenides, a Cretan philosopher, and he also quotes Aratus, a Sicilian Stoic philosopher. He does this so that he lets them know that they're not standing above him. He can play on their game. Uh, he can play their game on their level. It's not like he's playing checkers and they're playing chess. Rather, because He's empowered by the Holy Spirit, He is always three steps ahead of them. And so let's read verses 29 through 31. Therefore, since we are God's offspring, we should not think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image made by human skill. In the past, God overlooked such ignorance, but now He commands all people everywhere to repent. For he has set a day when he will judge the world with justice by the man he has appointed. He's given proof of this to everyone by raising him from the dead. God's nature is not able to be rendered by human skill or design, and it cannot be depicted in gold, silver, or stone, or anything else. Only flesh and blood can adequately house the divine presence, because only we are made in the image of God. Since humans are in the image of God, God already has everything necessary for full and complete membership into humankind. The only thing He lacks is a body. Since God doesn't have a body, God is spirit. So when the second person of the Trinity, the Logos, the Lord Jesus Christ, was, had a body fashioned for Him by the miraculous virginal conception of the Holy Spirit into the Virgin Mary, Jesus was able to have a body. And because He was able to have a body and because he already had everything necessary for full and complete membership into humankind, which is possible since humans are made in the image of God, Jesus Christ is the God-man. Jesus Christ is both human and divine. He's both at the same time. And it's him that we worship. It's him that will judge. He's the one who will judge. And God proved that it would happen... By raising him from the dead. But there are so many people that are ignorant of this fact. There are so many people that are ignorant of this. There are so many people that think that they can worship a stone idol, or a gold idol, or a silver idol, or in our day, a political idol, or a sports figure idol, or monetary idolatry. And we think that we can get to the divine essence by stuff that we make. God is done. Excusing that ignorance. He has revealed to us the truth. And Jesus Christ will judge all people. But praise be to God, the good news is this. Jesus, the judge, is also God Himself, who lived and moved and walked amongst us and died on the cross for our sins even though we are the ones who deserve sin but as second corinthians 5:21 says he who had no sin became the righteousness of god so that or became sin for us so that we might become the righteousness of god rather there is a great cosmic switcheroo and the good news is that god raised jesus from the dead and he now reigns as king over everything and all you have to do is place your faith in him And that He has covered the penalty for your sin. And He will empower you via the Holy Spirit to live for Him and change this world. That is the good news. And so I don't fear judgment. I have already repented. I look forward to the coming of the Lord Jesus when He will judge. But there are those who don't. Because there are those who still continue to dwell in ignorance. It is our task To help alleviate them of their ignorance. Remove it and destroy it with all haste. This is our job. Now Paul's really letting them have it. Both the Epicureans and the Stoics hated the idea of resurrection. Death was either the end of everything if you were an Epicurean. Or the physical form was corrupted and only non-physical stuff was very valuable if you were a Stoic. So the concept of resurrection flies in the faiths of the belief that there is no afterlife, and seemingly undoes the victory that death produced by separating us from our body. The resurrection screws up everything if your philosophy is not based on Christ. And so they were really upset that Paul said that. Well, how did they respond? Let's finish the chapter. When they heard about the resurrection of the dead, some of them sneered. But others said, we want to hear you again on this subject. At that, Paul left the council. Some of the people became followers of Paul and believed. Among them was Dionysius, a member of the Areopagus, also a woman named Damaris, and a number of others. And that's how things end. Of course, some of them sneered at Paul. They hated the resurrection. Fortunately, the curiosity of the intellectual thirsty compelled some of them to request a follow-up lesson by Paul. The very first word of verse 34 is really crucial. Some. Some became followers and believed. The two named converts are Damaris, a prominent woman in Athens, whose mention indicates her means and capability to help the church, and Dionysius, whom history tells us became the bishop of Athens. Good convert, Paul. These two high-impact converts are but a number of, all of others who also believed. So what is it that we can take away from Paul's little trip to Athens? By way of application, there are a few things that we must, must take into account. The first is we must align ourselves with God's desires. We must align ourselves with God's desires. You have to hate what God hates. Do you know what God hates? God hates sin, God hates idolatry, God hates evil. By aligning yourself with God's desires, you learn to hate what God hates. Does, does seeing the idolatry of our world s- stir up a storm within your being? Oh, it does for me. I can't stand it. Did, when you hear certain politicians talk about certain issues, does it make you want to crumple up your newspaper and throw it at the television screen? Yeah, of course it does. We hate what God hates. Hate sin. Hate idolatry. Hate evil but we also love what God loves. And what is it that God loves? People. God loves people. God loves reason. He is a God of reason. He created us in His image. We are allowed to think. And so, we must. God also loves belief and repentance. And if we talk about these things, our desires are lined up with His. And we must also align our desires by growing in Christlikeness. You grow in Christlikeness through discipleship, belief, trust, and loving obedience. And a part of demonstrating loving obedience is sharing the faith. Do you guys share the faith? Oh, I hope so. I hope you share the faith with people. There are three things I want you to know about sharing the faith. The first is, you need to stop being timid if you are. Don't be timid. 2 Timothy 1.7 says, For the Spirit of God does not make us timid, but gives us power, love, and self-discipline. You have to be bold in your declaration of the faith. I love to teach people how to share the faith so much that I'm even doing a conference in November that's all about evangelism and discipleship. On November 1st through 3rd, all weekend long, my best friend and I are going to talk about discipleship and evangelism. And if you want to learn how to better evangelize people, I'm leading a whole conference on that. Second, don't be ashamed of the gospel. Romans 1.16 says, For I'm not ashamed of the gospel because it's the power of God that brings salvation to everyone who believes, first the Jew and then the Greek. The gospel is the good news, and don't you dare be ashamed of it. There might be some smarty pants at the U of A who tries to tell you it's dumb. You just look at him straight in the eye and you say, no, sir, this is the good news and glorious revelation of God Almighty. And because you're empowered by the Holy Spirit, you can hang with him. I I know this from firsthand experience. Eight years I spent debating the intellectual elite at the University of Arkansas getting a master's degree and a doctorate degree. They're not that tough. They're just regular guys. They're just regular sinful guys and gals like you and me. But we have the truth on our side. Don't ever be ashamed of the gospel. And lastly, know and connect with your audience. I mentioned that word some was really important. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 9.22, I've become all things to all people so that by all possible means I might save some. You're not going to get them all. You're not going to get them all. How many did Paul, the greatest evangelist, get in Athens? Dionysius, Damaris, and a number of others. He didn't get them all. He got some. How many are you going to get? You better expect to get some, not all. But you know what you should do for all? You should become all things to all people. And that doesn't mean sinful stuff. It means to the Jew, you do Jew stuff. So when Paul was talking to the Jews, he quoted the Old Testament all the time. To the Greek, you do Greek stuff. So to the Athenian philosophers, he quoted their poets and prophets. And he talked about things that are also in Scripture, but he didn't reference Scripture. Instead, he just gave the story of Christianity and talked about the resurrection. To everyone he met, he talked about the resurrection. You can talk about the resurrection too. Become all things to all people, so that by all possible means, you might win some. I'm here to tell you, Christianity stands up as intellectually viable, rationally superior to all of its alternatives. And we are spiritually assured. After all, we are the temples of God, and the Holy Spirit Himself lives within us, attesting to the truth of our faith. Would you stand with me and pray? Dear Heavenly Father, Lord Jesus, Holy Spirit, I call upon your triune name thanking you for the New Life Christian Church and for the glorious believers inside of it. I thank you for the opportunity to get to share your magnificent chapter 17 of the book of Acts with them. I pray that the words that I have spoken would bring you glory and would bring them benefit. God, help us to share the truth so that we can win more to your kingdom. God, as we go out into a world full of idols, Help us to be strong. Help us never to forget that we are the temples of the Holy Spirit. You indwell us. There's nothing to fear in this world. So help us boldly proclaim your truth. God, we love you, but don't you dare just take our word for it. Please see it in our actions. This we pray in your name. Amen.